Okay, you go on a trip and things happen. Maybe you pack the wrong stuff, your luggage gets lost, or you can't find your passport and have to spend most of the day at the American embassy. These things range from mildly irritating to totally sucky, but you get through them. But what if the stuff that happens is a little more epic? Like traveling in war zones, dealing with poisonous snakes, engines falling out of your plane, kind of epic. Could you roll with that? On today's episode of Fiber Nation, we talk to the Indiana Jones of the fiber world. And while her job might seem exciting, jetting all over the world to write about sericulture and seal wool, doing these deep dives into indigenous fiber traditions, when things go wrong, things go really wrong. Sometimes to the point where she might be in mortal danger. Mostly, though, they're just kind of a colossal pain in the ass. Except for the poisonous snakes. Those are totally real. I'm Alison Korleski, and you're listening to Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. Now, if you listen to the show, you know I love long expositions and lots of context for whatever the story is going to be, but not today, because we are taking a whirlwind tour of the globe, from one of the most dangerous countries on Earth to a tiny kingdom in Africa to almost the bottom of the world. I'm Linda Courtright. I'm the editor and publisher of Wild Fibers magazine, and I'm also the author of two books, Twisted Tales and The Eye of Fiber. Okay, I lied. I have to give you a little exposition. Wild Fibers magazine isn't just articles about silk and linen and bison. It's about the people who raise the animals and grow the plants. It's history and its culture and its curiosity and respect for fiber traditions around the world. We have a link in our show notes page, and please do check it out. Way before she founded the magazine, back in the mid-90s, Linda raised cashmere goats. They were pretty new to the U.S. and adapted to a very different environment. And despite the best intentions, the breeders, not just Linda, made a lot of mistakes. And that experience got Linda thinking. Goats, or any domestic animal for that matter, they don't evolve in a vacuum. They reflect their particular environment, and they shape that environment through grazing and migration and doing animal stuff. And that environment shapes the human cultures that develop there. Like whether people need to move around a lot or can stay put, the foods they eat, the kinds of cloth they make for shelter and clothing, and the social relationships that come from all those things. It's all connected. And Linda wanted to write about those connections between animals and land and people in a way that no one else was doing. You know, I wanted to write a magazine that would interest anyone. That even though it was called Wild Fibers, it was, should be, every article should be written with the idea that you could never have picked up a pair of knitting needles not know the difference between a sheep or a goat and read a, read an article in Wild Fibers and go, huh, I had no idea. So Linda envisioned Wild Fibers as National Geographic meets Outside Magazine, but with yaks. She started the magazine in 2002, and it was tough going. Her first trip to Alaska to a muskox farm, they wouldn't even let her touch the animals, which when you do a fiber magazine is kind of important. But slowly, she built credibility. People looked at her magazine and were impressed. They started returning her calls. She got invitations. 
A Kashmir conference in Kyrgyzstan led to a trip to meet herders in Mongolia, which in turn led her to someone raising angora rabbits in western China. Linda began to travel all over the globe to cover nomadic herders, silk weavers, people who raised lotus plants for this insanely fine fabric. But these weren't hop on a plane and take the train to the city kind of trips. This was Chile, Myanmar, almost every country ending in Stan. She had to go up mountains and boat down rivers and drive across deserts in pursuit of these stories. Linda was doing true adventure travel, the kind of travel where the preparation often takes longer than the trip itself. Sometimes it's a smooth trip. I have had a couple of smooth trips, but they're more the exception than the rule. And a lot of it is just trying to make sure at some point you are connected with someone who's going to know all the loopholes. So you need to get visas and translators and transport and all that, but you also need people who know the actual terrain. A a good example is that Linda was really excited about a trip to Myanmar, where this indigenous group spun dog hair into cloth, until her contact there pointed out that it was the rainy season, and the roads they needed would have been underwater. Sometimes, though, the people who are supposed to smooth the way can be the people making life difficult. And that brings us to Afghanistan, a silkworm farm, and a State Department bro called Jim. That trip began with a mysterious phone call from a man who called himself George from Afghanistan. To this day, Linda has no idea how he found her, but he said he had a story. And it's too long to go into here. But a woman named Rabia Mariam, a former teacher in Mazari Sharif, had started this underground network of silk weavers. It was so successful that the U.S. government got involved and trained 2,000 farmers how to raise silkworms rather than opium crops. As a story, this was exactly the kind of thing that Linda looked for. Silk fiber helping women, sustaining a community, supporting legitimate commerce rather than the illegal drug trade. But it was Afghanistan. She explained her qualms to George. The original offer was that um, George would send me all these government reports and accompanying pictures for me to write the story. And one of the things that I have been adamant about doing is that if it is a story that is taking place here and now, then that means boots on the ground. And I was not sure I was ready to go into Afghanistan. George assured her he could arrange security. And the State Department really needed all the positive coverage of Afghanistan that they could get, so they stepped in to help as well. I certainly would not have known how to go to Afghanistan had State Department not been involved. What I didn't know is that having State Department involved meant both good and bad things. One of the most frustrating events ever was that After going through a lot of interviewing, a lot of briefing, certainly a a lot of cultural etiquette, when I got a a call from someone at the State Department saying, oh, we're looking over your records here, and it says that you're divorced. I said, yes. And? And this person said, well, that's a problem. Because... A divorced woman in Afghan culture is, as a rule, often not accepted into society, you know? So he said, quite matter-of-factly, well, we're going to have to change that before you go. And then he said, sort of looking for a bright spot, well, do you have any children? No. (laughs) No children. Oh, that's a problem, too. And so that was where I 
all right, well, I'm just going to say I'm married to my old boyfriend because I have pictures of him. So then Linda scrolled through her phone, looking for photos of people who could pass for her children. She settled on a niece and her massage therapist, as one does. So I boarded the plane, miraculously having gotten married and had two children in four days. Backstory solved, she was set. Everything was going to be fine. And then I ran into just possibly the worst person imaginable to get the whole thing rolling, right? That would be Jim, her State Department escort for the remainder of the trip. And no, Jim is not his real name. They had made plans to meet at the airport in Istanbul. Then they'd continue to cobble together. Except... He doesn't show. I am in position at the Starbucks, one o'clock in the morning, the designated spot. And I knew his flight. He was flying in from his home in Bulgaria. So I had that flight information. His flight had landed. His leg had landed on time. So I'm waiting, 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 one, one o'clock, one fifteen, one thirty, one forty-five. Now, now I'm not feeling so good. And I'm, you know, doing the typical, you know, checking my emails. Do I have phone reception? Everything. Two o'clock. And my flight leaves for Kabul in just over an hour. And so boarding's going to begin. And I think. Maybe he's in the Turkish Air Lounge, you know, the business lounge. But I scan everything and no sign of him. No sign. And I think, oh. They call the flight. I go walking down to the gate. It was a long walk to the gate, of course. No sign of anyone at the gate that even remotely looks like this guy. And I'm thinking, where is he? Now, keep in mind that Jim had her tickets to Kabul. She can't go anywhere without a male escort if she does get to Kabul, and she has no ticket home if this whole thing implodes, which it seems to be doing. And the tension is is really ripping me up. And just as they're doing, you know, the aviation equivalent of last call, I see this guy come sauntering down to the gate. And he catches my gaze and he sort of smiles and he's all chummy. And as he comes walking up to me, he extends his arm and he pulls me into this big bear hug like we are dear friends and haven't seen each other for 10 years. And I am like, I am so ready to deck you. And that's, I say to him, I've been looking everywhere. I even looked in the lounge. And he says, I know, I saw you. When the guy who's responsible for keeping you alive ignores you because he's too busy playing Tetris or whatever, that's kind of a problematic start, and things didn't get better. Meeting Rabia and talking to the silk workers was this extraordinary experience for Linda. But Jim's glad-handing while not actually doing anything, that got old really fast. But Jim was the official representation of the organization, so Jim made all the decisions. And the best or worst or funniest of these, depending on your point of view, came on the last day of her trip. Linda had left the compound for the first time to explore the market, maybe do some shopping. Maybe not the safest thing to do, but she did have a security team with her, so it shouldn't be a problem. So Linda's looking through a pile of tablecloths when she hears Jim say, "Uh uh-oh, which is not what you want to hear from a State Department guy in a hostile country. 
She looks up and sees that the shop door is now barricaded by a group of men looking in. They're gesturing, they're talking loudly to each other. This could be bad. Jim sent their head of security to find out what was going on. And apparently, a few people thought Linda looked an awful lot like a popular Turkish soap opera star, and word had spread. Now fans were crowding the storefront trying to get a look at her. This is great, said Jim. We are going with this. He popped a pair of dark sunglasses over her face, adjusted her headscarf, and led her through what was now a crowd of shop owners and their families, all waving and smiling at what they thought was a celebrity. Now, everyone knows that Afghanistan is incredibly dangerous. So Linda's fears were not misplaced, even though everything ended well on that trip. It was on another trip, sort of a semi-vacation, where things got unexpectedly scary, because no one had told her about the snakes. Coming up, mohair meets mamba. Black mambas, that is. We're back and getting ready to head to South Africa. It is the world's largest producer of mohair, and Linda was doing this big story. Then she found out about this mohair-weaving interior design company called Coral Stevens. It was in Eswatini, a tiny country to the northeast, and provided a steady income to local women. Linda reached out to Murray Stevens, the woman who now ran the company, and the two women hit it off right away. She made plans to visit, even throwing in a safari at the end of the trip to celebrate her 50th birthday. That trip, though, it got off to a rough start. On the way to the airport in Lesotho, Linda is in a car accident, a fender bender, but still. And although everything turned out okay, certainly the aftermath, and any time, I mean, if you've ever been in a car accident, you're shaken up. You know, you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're out of sorts for a while. So she's shaken, but she knows that everything will be fine once she gets to Murray's place. I'm at the airport, and all of a sudden, the sky turns even darker than it does during an eclipse. I've never seen, you know, the night sky doesn't get this dark. As this thunderstorm comes through and the airport is just completely shut down for, you know, an hour or two hours. When the plane lands, it's still pouring and dark, and all she can see on the jeep ride through the jungle is flooded roads and fallen trees. But she makes it to the house. Murray and her husband Tommy greet her warmly. There's cocktails, a good dinner, two happy dogs thumping their tails. Everything is fine. Until they mention that they just lost a happy tail-thumping dog to Snakebite from a black mamba. Two things you need to know here. Linda is utterly pathologically terrified of snakes, and as snakes go, black mambas are badass. One bite and you are dead in 20 minutes. They grow up to 14 feet long and can run 12 miles an hour, which is about as fast as a human can run when she's running for her life. And Mary has this lovely light lilt to her voice, and she says, well, they're really, you know, they're common around here. And she said, we had one in the bedroom one night. Didn't we, Tommy? She says, oh, you know, I was sitting there reading in bed, and Tommy gave me a little nudge and said, I think there's a black mamba over there. And she says, and there it was, right underneath the curtain. And she says, well, we just didn't want to deal with it at night. So we got up and just moved down to the hall to the guest bedroom. And and I hear about how the next morning, 
in this bedroom snake episode, sure enough, they go back in. And as Tommy opens the door, the lamp has been knocked over. The quilt has been, the duvet has been pulled off the bed. And he can just see a teeny little bit of the black mamba that's now asleep under the bed. And, and Murray continues, her voice not showing the least bit of concern. She says, well, Tommy and I tried to get it. She says, but really, you should let the professionals do it. Which makes total sense when you're dealing with a deadly snake that's capable of rearranging furniture. There's this phone number you dial, and snake eyes just kind of show up with a stick and a garbage can and remove the snake. So Linda, at this point, is paralyzed with fear, though she's doing her best not to show it. But she's not sleeping in the house. She's in the guest house, so everything will be fine. So... Very politely, Tommy carrying my bag, Murray shining the light from her phone, you know, leads me up this path, and it's this warm summer evening in Africa. It's the jungle and all these fabulous smells. She takes me to the guest house, which I'm telling you is, is only slightly smaller than my house. She leads me into the master bedroom, and she says, you know, I just need to check one more time. For snakes. I know Seely checked earlier, but I should check again. And she walks over to the bed, pat, 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 looking for a snake. And I always say, are you shitting me? And she just does this quick pat, 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 turns to the doorway, turns around, and she, and she says, nighty night, sleep well, and walks out the door. Linda opted to spend the night in a chair, wide awake. But for the rest of the trip, everything was fine. Even if, later on, the engine fell out of the plane that was to take her to her safari while it was still in the air. So after the South Africa trip, and despite all the snakes, Linda and Murray became great friends, and she visited her and Tommy many times. And when Linda went to do a story in the Andes, both women thought it would be an adventure if Murray accompanied her. And it was... The plan was to meet with a mill owner named Antonio. He'd take them up into the mountains to meet a group of llama herders and then fly with them down to Tierra del Fuego. Guanacos, these small wild relatives of the llama, had taken over there and were wrecking havoc on the environment. And even though the animal is rare, the herds there, they needed to be culled. And Antonio claimed he'd figured out a way to process fiber from the dead guanacos on a large scale. This was kind of a big story in the fiber world. So the two women flew out. It should come as no surprise that things didn't work out as planned. Antonio, who was head of the mill, had made me all sorts of wonderful promises to be able to go and spend the night with, you know, the herders in the Andes so I could really get that firsthand experience. And so Marie and I arrive after a very long day of travel in Chile And we are sitting there at dinner, and he's brought along his family, which is fine. He's got a wife and two very small children. So not long into the dinner, Antonio says, Linda, 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 I am so happy you are here. This is so wonderful. And I smile, and I say, oh, thank you for this opportunity. About 10 minutes later, he says, 
Linda, 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 I'm so happy you're here. He does this several times, and and I mean, I'm still smiling, but I'm not really sure I'm understanding this whole Linda, Linda thing. Okay, you know when you watch the movie about poker players, and the one guy always strokes his chin or pushes up his glasses when he's bluffing? That's called a tell. Antonio's tell was to say Linda's name three times, right before he broke bad news. Long about the third or fourth time, he says... There's been a change of plan. And I go, okay. Something has come up and I cannot accompany you to to Tierra del Fuego. Now, just for logistics, this is like, this is almost the equivalent of doing a story in Philadelphia and doing a follow-up story in Florida. Okay. This is, you know, a four-hour flight. This is not around the corner. And he is my guide, my contact, my translator, my everything. And for him to say, I can't accompany you, and I already have my tickets, it's already in the, is a complete like, okay, so who is who is going to accompany me? Antonio assures them it will all work out. Everything will be fine. Everything is not fine. And Antonio continues to not deliver on promise after promise. So he said, oh, Linda, I'm so sorry, but can't can't arrange the shepherd because the shepherd's going to be working at the polling booth because Sunday is election day. So he's not going to be at the farm. Antonio had forgotten to mention the election. Actually, he'd forgotten to mention a lot of things. Well, we finally agreed that we'll drive up into the Andes and at least get what I can of the story and go to a market. Except Antonio doesn't have a car. So I have to now rent a truck for us to drive five hours up into the Andes to hopefully get a story. And he informs me that afternoon before we're leaving that he's decided to bring his wife and two children with him too. But, you know, I need to get my story done. Not in a position to deny him. So we rent this truck and we begin this five and a half hour drive with Antonio's two children, his wife and Murray sitting in the back seat. And we're, I don't know, two hours into the trip. And all of a sudden you hear that sign that you hear that noise. And that noise means only one thing. Someone's about to throw up. And sure enough, his daughter starts to vomit and vomit and vomit. And there's no place for her to vomit except over her lap and Murray's lap. So now we have this vomiting child in the backseat of the car, which, okay, is never a good time for anybody, most of all the child, all right? Murray is certainly not having a good time. And Antonio turns to me and he says, oh, yes, She always gets sick when we travel in the car. If you've ever traveled with children, you know that when one throws up, the others start to throw up too. Now we have two children hurling up breakfast in the backseat of the car on a five-hour drive that's already two hours late for a story that I'm not even sure is going to exist when I get there. That being said, we finally get to this market where it's a market between Bolivia, Peru, and Chile. And I think, oh, great pictures, a market. You know, this will help save the story. And it turns out that you cannot take a rental truck 
across the border. We don't have the. So now he has to bribe someone to take us across the border. And guess who's got to pay for that bribe? Right. I do. We finally go through all the shenanigans to get across the border. We get to the market and we look down into a space that looks like the end of a football game. The stadium is empty. Everyone has gone home, but the very last crew cleaning up. The market had closed. It should be no surprise that the trip down to Tierra del Fuego was a bust as well. Antonio bailed, then forgot to tell the mill manager that they were coming. The guanaco hides were so old they crumbled to bits, and the hotel he'd arranged didn't provide sheets, though they did see penguins. So, you know, not everything turns into a story, or at least not the one that goes into print. I asked her about Antonio, not his real name, and I am shocked to discover that he's no longer in business. Linda has so many stories, some funny, some frightening, some just WTF, but what stays with me is the sheer amount of stamina she has. When we did this interview in early February, she'd just returned from Antarctica and was planning trips to Alaska, Bhutan, South Africa, and Scotland, and that's only through July of this year. Linda is one tough woman. And Wild Fibers Magazine and her books bear witness to that toughness just because they exist at all. But more importantly, they bring her original vision into focus for us all. The type of travel I do is adventure travel. And, you know, not all adventures are easy and fun, but ultimately they are hugely rewarding. And, and that's the price you pay, right? Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other people find us. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski. Our co-producer and audio engineer is Daisha Clay. Fiber Nation is part of Interweave and Golden Peak Media, and our executive podcast producer is Jared Mayer. You know, it's like it's it's like that that scene, like you know, where you walk in and someone's dog starts humping your leg incessantly, and you're like, "Oh, it's okay, it's okay, I don't mind. I love it when dogs <laughs> hump my leg, right?" You know, I mean, it's just you know that we all we were all raised that well, most of us were raised that way.